Well, the story starts today in the very early morning hours. In fact, it's still dark. She's in bed. And uh, she'll never forget the moment. The city's quiet. Nothing's stirring outside. So it's very silent until all of a sudden she heard it. She heard several men rushing through her front door. And you can imagine she was terrified in the midst of all the confusion that happened. The man that was in her bed, he escaped somehow. Not sure how that happened, but she was captured. She was drug out of bed. They forced her to change her clothes, and they began to take her out into the early dawn hours. The sun was just beginning to come up over the mountains that surround the city. And she's going down sort of a dark alley, in and out of the shadows, not knowing what's happening, what's going on, where they're taking her. But at a certain point, they crossed the intersection. She looked up and she saw the huge steps. And all of a sudden, it began to get clear. That moment, she began to understand where they were going and what was happening. Well, today, we are continuing this journey that we've been on the last couple months. We're in the midst of a series called Unfiltered, Revealing the Character of the Kingdom. And if you're brand new, um, this series is actually like the second, think of it like a second mini-series in a longer-running, larger series, kind of like a second season of a TV show that's kind of ongoing. And so um, in this second series, uh, or in the series overall, what we've seen kind of week after week is that when it comes to Jesus and understanding who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, we all tend to have sort of images in our mind. Um, we all tend to have a natural tendency to recreate Jesus in our own image. Um, based on stories that we've heard, if we were growing up in, in church, maybe flannel graph or, or kind of a cartoon animated Jesus, or uh, as we've grown up, maybe sermons we've heard or books we've read or TV shows we've seen or Discovery Channel or um, movies about Jesus or, or whatever. And so we all have, to have a natural tendency to recreate Jesus in our own image. And our goal in this series is really to go back in time, back to the very first century when the first documents about Jesus kind of describe his life, his death, his resurrection, uh, his teaching, and go back in time to get some more accurate images of who Jesus is. So what we're doing is we're going back to one of the most important documents. It's called the Gospel of Matthew. It's a biography of Jesus. It kind of lays out his, his life, his teaching, and so on. Uh, to see if we can capture some new images, some more unfiltered images, uh, not touched up images of who Jesus is, what, he, what it means to follow him. And so in the second series, uh, we're coming to the first time to some teaching of Jesus. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the first few chapters kind of set us up and we come to chapter five and, and chapter five for the very first time, Matthew lays out some of the teaching. This is what Jesus was teaching. And, uh, and so uh, it's, uh, this teaching in chapter 5 through 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous teaching of Jesus. Also, it's the most famous teaching in the history of the world. Um, and in it, Jesus is kind of laying out his, his message of his movement. And so um, it starts off with these eight provocative statements. Um, they're sort of the path to the good life. In Jewish uh, thought, Jewish language, the path to the, path to the blessed life. And so we call them the Beatitudes because the, the Latin word for blessing is uh, beatus. And so we call them the Beatitudes. So this week we're on the fifth statement, kind of a controversial, um, kind of a countercultural statement of Jesus. Here's the path to the good life. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, they're in your note sheet. You have a section called the, the, uh, the fifth Beatitude, the gift of mercy. So let's go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. 
Turn on your apps if you're going that route. And uh, let me set it up. And I like to do this every week, uh, especially for those of you who are brand new, but uh, also for those of you who are just, you know, not paying attention. So, um, <laughs> Ridge, I see you. Uh, <laughs> it's like you're over there. I can get away with this. Um, yeah, so, um, so uh, here, here's the context. You know, Jesus has gone to the north of Israel, the area we call the Galilee. He's launched his ministry. He's traveling around from village to village, town to town, city to city, sharing the message. And his message is this epic claim that the long-promised kingdom of God, when God would return to his people and forgive them of their sins and turn all wrongs to right and bring in the new heavens and the new earth and kind of heal creation, that that, that era, that new kingdom, is, is very near And then he's not just making the claim, he's backing it up with signs of power from the future kingdom, but they're breaking into time and space here and now. And so the eyes, the blind are being healed and demoniacs are being freed and so on. And so as a result, as you can imagine, people, hundreds, thousands of people are coming from great distance to hear about Jesus, to listen to his message about the kingdom, maybe to catch a miracle. And so that's where we pick it up in chapter five and verse one. And so Jesus sees these crowds. He went up to the mountainside and he sat down and his disciples come to him and he begins to teach them. So again, for the focus, he's teaching the disciples, the crowd's there, that's great. They can listen in, they can decide to follow him, but the teaching's really for his followers. And so he starts with these eight statements and blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom. And so remember in Luke's gospel, he says, blessed are the poor. Um, and so he says, the kingdom is something we can enter here and now. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And so Jesus is announcing the good news that the prophets had said that when the kingdom comes, uh, the poor will be restored. Those who are mourning will be comforted. Uh, Those who are meek, weak, vulnerable will be rescued. They will win. Those who are hungry for God, uh, their desire for all wrongs to be turned right will be satisfied. And so Jesus is announcing the kingdom is, is near. And today he comes to the fifth mark of the kingdom person, right? So who is this kingdom for and who can be a part of the kingdom? And we come to the fifth mark and it comes in verse seven. And he says, blessed are the whom? The merciful. Let's say it together. Blessed are the merciful because they will receive what? Okay, blessed are the merciful. They'll receive mercy. And of course, like every other one of the Beatitudes, it raises the question, well, who are these people that are merciful? What does it look like to be merciful? How can I be merciful? What does it mean to receive mercy? So lots of questions. So what we're going to do today, like we've done every week, is to understand what Jesus is saying. We have to go step back in time, not just to the first century, but back to the story of Israel that Jesus had come to fulfill. He's not just like coming out of the blue. He's coming to, to take the story of Israel uh, to the next level, to write the next chapters. And so we're going to go back to the Old Testament and understand what, was, what, what does Jesus mean when he talks about the, being merciful. And what I'm going to suggest today is that to be merciful has two sides or two aspects of mercy. When what is mercy? Kind of two major components. Think of it like a coin. It's one coin, mercy, but it's got two sides. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called the fifth beatitude, the two sides of mercy. And let's jump in. So the first thing that we see, we go back into the story of Israel. What does it mean to be merciful? The first thing that the side is that uh, mercy has to do with forgiveness for failure. Right? Then we say that 
God is merciful. We're talking about that he offers forgiveness to those who have failed. Now, this goes very far back in their history. In fact, we're going to be looking today at a passage of Scripture that if it, catch this, if it is not the most important passage in the Old Testament, it's right up there, top five. Uh, and it's, a, it's an incident that happens right after the nation of Israel comes out of Egypt. Now, remember this, when Moses comes along, Moses knows hardly anything about God. We forget this. We look back and, and we read Moses and Joshua. We read it as if they know what we know. Well, we're way down the line. When Moses comes along, there is no Joshua yet. When Moses comes along, there is no promised land yet. There are no kings of Israel yet. There's no King David yet. There's no prophets. God, what they know about God is very little. And so when Moses meets the God of Israel at the burning bush, and he introduces himself, I'm Yahweh, that is my name, I am who I am. This is all kind of new. Very, he knows very little about this God. And so he goes down to Egypt, right? And he, under this God's leadership, uh, they see his power as he unleashes his power against Egypt. And he rescues his people from slavery. They come out to Mount Sinai, a three-month journey. When they get to Mount Sinai, God shows up. And God invites him into relationship. And it's a critical time. Basically, God comes. He's shown his love. He's delivered them from slavery. And so he says, I want to enter into a relationship with you. And here's my offer. It's basically like a marriage proposal. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And, and so they had a decision to make. They said, yes, this God who's rescued us from slavery, we want to enter into relationship. He says, okay, well, you need to understand this is an exclusive relationship. No other gods before me, no idols. This is like a marriage. It's not an open marriage, right? It's not like you add me to your pantheon of gods. It's like we're going to have an exclusive relationship. And they're like, yes, we are in. We're all in. And so then 40 days later, remember Moses is up on the mountain. 40 days later, they're getting, where did he go? And they decide to go back to what they knew best. And they end up worshiping the golden calf. And so this would be very much like someone getting married and then their spouse having an affair 40 days later. And so as a result of this, God is saying, God says, I'm not so sure I'm going to continue with you on this journey. I'll send someone to help you, but you guys are just, you know, this is really bad. And so Moses goes before the Lord and says, God, will you have mercy on us? Will you forgive us? Uh, will you go with us? And he says, and on top of that, God, he says, um, I really want to know you more. Would you reveal your glory to me? Remember, he doesn't know this God very well. Would you reveal your glory? And so God says, okay, I will pass before you. Um, you can't see me in all my glory. You'll be fried, but I'll let you see my back, so to speak. And I'm going to proclaim my name, which means I'm going to reveal my core character. And this passage that we're going to be reading in Exodus 34 is one of the most important passages in all the Bible. It may be the most important passage in the Old Testament. And I say that because in the Old Testament, guess what? It is the most quoted passage in the Old Testament by the Old Testament. In other words, after this point, Israel keeps looking back to this passage this is who God is. You may not be that familiar with it, but I'm telling you, it's one of the most important passages. God says, this is who I am. And so it's there in your note sheet, and it's uh, Exodus 34, and it's so interesting how God reveals himself. It says, the Lord, remember, Lord, all, all caps means what? Yahweh. 
Yahweh. And remember, he had got to just give it, reveal himself by this name about a year before at the burning bush. So he says, um, Yahweh descended in a cloud, and he stood with him, both Moses there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord, and Yahweh passed before him, and then he, he begins to reveal himself. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, what's the very first word? Merciful. Circle that. Blessed are the merciful. Topic on the table, what does it mean to be merciful? It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, it takes a lot to tick him off. And catch this next word, abounding. Not just a little bit, but abounding in steadfast what? Love and faithfulness. Now these two words, love and faithfulness, are powerful words. They're two of the most important words in the Old Testament. These Hebrew words. The first word, the word for love, is the Hebrew word chesed. It's like a hard H-S-D and with E's in between, but chesed. And so it refers to God's covenant love. So it's not just like a feeling of love. It is his commitment. We have entered into covenant, like a marriage covenant, and I will love you, and I will always love you no matter what. It's often translated loyal love. Funniest uh, sidebar on this, my son-in-law, before he became my son-in-law, um, he, this was years ago, and um, he, uh, he came to me one day, he said, hey, you know, I've just heard about this Hebrew word, chesed. Have you ever, do you know about it? Yes, it's like the, one of the most important words in the whole Bible. It's like, I'd, he says, yes, and I just learned about it. He said, I want to get a tattoo, will you help me? I said, what do you need? He said, well, I, I, want, I need to take it to a tattoo artist, but they don't know how to write chesed. So could you like, could you like uh, show me what this looks like? And I said, sure. And so I went to my Hebrew program and printed it off. He said, I just want to get a little tattoo and, uh, under my shirt sleeve so it's not showing. Um, and uh, I said, well, great. Sounds like a good plan, right? So he comes back a few days later. It's this huge thing, chesed. <laughs> And it's like, well, at least if you're going to have something on your arm, that's the way to go. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, and so, uh, so anyway, uh, but the other word is uh, amet. So in Hebrew, it's chesed amet and, and truth. And amet means um, truth, but it means truth uh, sort of in a relational sense, that God will be true to his promise. He will be faithful. That's why it's translated faithfulness. Chesed amet. He says, this is who I am. I'm a God of mercy. I, it takes a lot to, to tick me off. And I am just full and overflowing of chesed ve'emet. That's who I am. And God reveals himself. And here's what happens from this point on. The nation of Israel looks back to this time and time again. And the story of Israel is so much a story of chesed ve'emet. It's a story of a nation that rebels against God time and time again, commits spiritual adultery with the idols of the nations time and time again, breaks their love for one another. They oppress the poor. They are unjust. They have the rich oppress the poor. They live out, and yet God continues to reach out and express his chesed, I'm with you, you need to repent, you need to come back, but I love you, and he continues to love them. And this becomes a story of the God of Israel, and this is a story Jesus is stepping into and saying, blessed are the merciful.
those that are like Yahweh. In fact, we see this not only in the, uh, the big picture of God's forgiveness for the nation, but we see it in individual forgiveness. There, you know, David, of course, had a sort of a checkered story, uh, so with Bathsheba and Uriah and so on, but in Psalm 25, look what he says there. This is from King David. He says, remember Yahweh, your great what? Your great mercy. See, the, Israel goes back and back to the mercy. Remember your great mercy and chesed, for they are from of old. What do you mean? When we first met you, when you first revealed yourself, this is who you are. And he says, so do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways, but according to your love, remember me. For you, O Lord, are great. You remember the Psalms? Remember that one Psalm that goes on and on? His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. And so what we see that as God begins to reveal himself to us as a race of who he is, one of his core components is, is mercy. But what does that look like? It means forgiveness for failure. Remember when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful, it was in the context of their rebellion. Now, what's interesting, when Jesus comes, of course, in Jesus, we see the face of God, don't we? In John chapter one, it says, no man has seen God at any time, but the one and only God who's from the Father has revealed him. Remember what Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus has come to reveal the Father kind of um, in flesh and blood, so to speak. And when you come to the life of Jesus, you see this mercy, this forgiveness for failure time and time again, his love for people far from God. We started today with a story of this woman who's ripped out of her bed early pre-dawn hours, I take him to the streets. And this is a story that we're told about an account that's told, it's a very famous story in John chapter 8. We're told in John chapter 8 that Jesus went to the temple, which was a huge fortress. Huge fortress. Um, the, the closest image we could come in your mind that you're probably familiar would be like a castle, except it would be much more big, much, fat, much more like, you know, huger, bigger, whatever. But think of it, you know, like, is that a word really? Like, huger, bigger, it's just like so big, it's like huger. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, so this huger place, but, uh, kind of picture it like that. And it's just, this is massive, right? And the huge steps going up there. And, and so she comes around the corner. She's, I mean, her mind's got to be racing. And all of a sudden she realizes what's going on. Because the man she was in, her, in bed that day with was not her husband. And it's beginning to get clear what's going on. So they drag this poor lady. They could care less about her, but they drag this poor lady. And we're told that Jesus at dawn had gone into the temple. He's there teaching. And so they bring up, and they're going to try to put him in a, 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 de- a desperate place. And we've often misunderstood this story. Let's take some filters off. In Jewish culture at this time, uh, Israel did not have the right of capital punishment. That's why I remember when they arrested Jesus, they had to take him before Pilate. They didn't have the right to kill him. They had the right to condemn him according to their law, but they had to find a charge that would stick with the Roman governors. That's why they didn't charge him of being a false prophet. When they took him, they charged him of high treason against Rome, being a king. They had to find something that would stick. And so they don't have the right to uh, execute. 
And so they're trying to put Jesus in a bind. And if you remember the, the account, they, they bring this woman, and they say, Jesus, this, this woman was um, caught in, in adultery in the very act. And I want you to think about that. That is not an easy thing to catch someone in the act of adultery. It's one thing to say, hey, this person's in an adulterous relationship. Great. But to catch them in the act, that's got to be almost like a setup. And this very, very likely was a setup because, you know, where's the man? Last I checked, it takes at least two. And they just have this one woman, and the man's gone. The whole thing smells of a setup. I wouldn't be surprised if this woman was a prostitute, and they had sent a man in. But they don't really care about this woman at all. They could care less about this woman. She's just a pawn in their religious game. And uh, they're just trying to get Jesus. They're trying to come up with charges they can charge Jesus with. So they, they bring the woman. She's caught in the very act. And so they said, what, what should we do? The law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? Now catch this. What they're trying to do is put him in an impossible situation. If he says, yes, we need to stone her, he is immediately in trouble with the Roman authorities. If he says, no, let her go, he's in trouble with the religious authorities as a false prophet who's teaching against the law of Moses. They're trying to put him in an impossible situation. And I don't know if you remember this, but they ask him the question, and Jesus sort of ignores him, and he just bows down and, and starts uh, kneeling down in the dirt, and he starts drawing in the dirt. And we have no idea what he was doing. It's funny when you read, like, everyone's got, like, theories but no one knows what he's doing. But what we do know, it was really irritating them. <laughs> and the reason we know that is in the Greek, it says, when they're asking, like, what should we do with her? It says in the Greek, the verb tense is they were continuing to ask. Uh, we were asking, hey, hey, Jesus. Uh. And finally he gets up and he says, he says, okay, let's, let's go for it. Let's take her out. Uh, but according to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 17, and this is where we got to take some filters off here. In Deuteronomy 17, the law is very clear that when you execute anyone with capital punishment by stoning, that the witnesses to the crime have to be present and they have to start the execution. And so Jesus says, all right, Okay, let's, uh, let's stone her. Let's, so whoever's without sin, I don't think what he's saying is, hey, whoever is perfect here, what he's saying is that, okay, those that we're not, we, we need the witnesses who are without sin, that they're not involved in this. We need, let's, let's take her out and let's stone her. Well, of course, he has now flipped the tables. They don't want to stone her. Any, it, it, they wanted him to say one thing or another to get him in trouble. They don't want to stone her. If they stone her, they'll be in trouble with the authorities. This whole thing is just a joke. He sees right through it. And it takes him a while, but the oldest of guys there begin to realize what he's done. And one by one, they begin to leave. And then he says to the woman, notice what's on your note sheet. He straightened up. He's been digging in the dirt the whole time. <laughs> While they're like one by one, just kind of, oh, crap. Uh, I didn't say that. All right. Uh, so Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Yeah, no one had 
the guts. I mean, they, they realize they're outmaneuvered. And she says, well, no one. And he said, what? Neither do I. And then what he says next, he says, go now and leave your life of sin. What are we looking at here? We're looking at mercy. We're looking at forgiveness for failure. This is what I often say here at Rocky Peak, and it's not something I've made up. It's just my little phrase to describe what we see in Jesus. Jesus always cares more where we're going than where we're coming from. And this is a great example. This woman was already humiliated. She knew what she was doing was wrong. She didn't need anyone to tell her that. He said, listen, I want to invite you in the kingdom. You need to leave your life of sin. Yes, you need to repent. You need to leave that. But I don't care where you're coming from. Let's just move forward. Isn't that beautiful? That Jesus always comes. And he says he, he never comes with condemnation. He just comes and says, hey, we need to leave that behind. We've got a new future going. And so let's move into the future together. And so many of us have experienced that, right? And so the first when we talk about mercy, I want you to see it in the big picture, rooted in the God of Israel who reveals himself as Yahweh, Yahweh, the merciful one, the one who forgives sin, who lives out that story throughout the whole story of Israel. And then Jesus comes as the face of God to live this out with flesh and blood. And what we see in the life of Jesus is time and time again, he's going to hang out with people far from God, and he brings the good news to the kingdom, that the kingdom is not just for the righteous, it's for you. Now, the second side of mercy. The second side of mercy, uh, the first side is forgiveness for failure. The second side, the second side is sensitivity to suffering. What we see as we study mercy in the life of Israel and, and the God of Israel is that mercy is not simply a forgiveness for, uh, for failure, that mercy, if you flip that coin over, it takes in this sensitivity to human suffering, that the God of Israel is a God of compassion. He loves the poor. He cares about the widows. In fact, one of the things he gets upset with the most with the nation of Israel uh, vertically is their idolatry, their spiritual adultery. But horizontally, one of the things he's most upset with them about throughout the prophets is their oppression of the poor. Let's say a woman dies, right? I mean, a woman, uh, a husband dies, and now you've got a widow, and she's very poor, and uh, she has no way of supporting herself. And so uh, the rich would come and try to buy up her land and steal her land from her so they could expand their wealth. And, and so there's no one to, they, they take it to court and then the, the judges would be bribed. And, and so unrighteousness would happen. And God's constantly in the prophets saying that, that God loves the poor. We've seen it in the Beatitudes, haven't we? God loves the poor. He loves those who are mourning. He loves those who are meek and weak and vulnerable. The kingdom is a time when God comes and rescues those who are uh, under the thumb, right, who are, are vulnerable. And so throughout their history, God has said he's a God of mercy, and he loves his people, and he wants his people to be a people of mercy, and I put a couple examples there in the prophets just to give you a feel. The first one is a famous verse from Micah. And Micah, the prophet, says, He has shown you, O Israel, what is good and what does Yahweh require of you. Like, what, what does God want of you as a nation? He says, The first thing is to act what? Justly. Now, we've seen this throughout this whole series, haven't we? 
He's a God of righteousness. It's not just a personal righteousness. It's a cosmic righteousness. And he says he wants you as a nation to act justly, righteously. And then he goes on, so we're going to act justly and to love what? Mercy. Mercy. He wants a culture in which the poor are taken care of and loved and protected, not, not taken advantage of. And he said, and to walk humbly with your God. Because this is what's required. Love justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. The next verse, very famous verse from Hosea. In fact, Jesus will quote this verse in the New Testament when he talks to the religious leaders who, as we're gonna see, have nothing to do with mercy. And he says to them, uh, God says, I desire mercy and not what? Acknowledgement of God or knowing God rather than burnt offerings. And so what what God is saying through Hosea is that In Hosea's day, the people were coming to God and going through religious motions. They're being very religious. They're going to church. They're offering sacrifices, but they are not pursuing God, and they're not loving one another, and they're taking advantage of the vulnerable. And he says, listen, I've had enough of this. Enough of your sacrifices, all right. Enough of the, forget it. I want you to really know me, and I want you to love mercy, and so we see this in the heart of Jesus then too as we, we come along. And we'll, we'll talk even more about this later, but we see this as Jesus is a reflection of who God is. We see this in the life of Jesus that he is a man who has compassion for the poor, compassion for those who are suffering. When you see it over and over again, and you may not have noticed the language before, but I want to point it out. Like let me give you an example. Uh, we'll see, in Matthew 20, Jesus is uh, on his final trip to Jerusalem. Jericho is about 18, 20 miles away from there. Jericho is a major city at the time of Jesus, major Roman city there, hippodrome there, fortress there, right? He's going to these major cities with his disciples. And uh, there's, because he's so famous now, and this is towards the end of his ministry, tons of people are coming out to see him. And a couple of those people who come out are these two blind men. Now, they're, you know, they're blind, they're poor, they're the dregs of society. No one cares about the blind men, right? And they're coming out, but they want to get to Jesus because they want to get healed. So they're calling out Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and so but the crowd's just trying to shut them up, like, you know, knock it off, knock it off. You're nobody. And look what happens here. In, in Matthew 20, look at the language. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have what? Mercy. mercy. Now, you may not have noticed that before, but they're saying, have mercy on us. We're blind men. We are poor. We're suffering. We have no hope. Have what? Mercy on us. And, and so the crowd just kind of rebukes him and tells him to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And we'll see this time and time again as people that are hurting and poor and sick, they come to Jesus. This is the language that they will use, have mercy on me. In fact, Jesus responds into the blind men and says, Jesus had what? Compassion. So see, mercy is not just forgiveness of sins. The other side is what I'm calling sensitivity for suffering or a compassion. Just three or four other examples, just real quickly. Uh, in Matthew 15, we'll see a, a Gentile woman come. Her daughter is demonized. And uh, she says, Lord, son of David, have what? Mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffered terribly. In Matthew 17, a father's gonna come. His son is throwing himself into the fire, self-destructive. He's demonized. 
And the father says in the next step, Matthew 17, Lord, have mercy on my son. You come to Luke 17, 10 lepers, they can't even come close to Jesus because they have leprosy. They call out from a distance and say, Jesus, master, have mercy on me. So I don't know if you've noticed that before, but these are people saying, we're suffering here. Would you have mercy? So what I want you to see today is that mercy has two sides. It's a forgiveness for failure It's sensitivity, compassion for the suffering. And so this informs him when Jesus speaks to Jewish people in the first century, and he says to them, blessed are the merciful, for they'll receive mercy. Now we understand how that would have been hurt. Now, this leads to a couple questions then for our life. And there on your note sheets, a section called the fifth beatitude, two important questions. And so I just want to get really practical. If we're going to be merciful people, if we're going to grow in mercy, then what does that look like practically in our lives? And and here's the first question, just for some self-assessment. How quick are you to forgive? Now, forgiveness comes in different sizes, doesn't it? Like there's some things that we're asked to forgive that are small things. Uh, The barista messes up your order. Um, the person cuts you off on the freeway. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. It's a spiritual discipline. Um, uh, someone at work lets you down. They don't meet a deadline, and it kind of messes with your, your, your project, right? Kind of smaller things. They're not life-changing. They're just kind of the irritations of life. And so there's small things we're called to forgive, and then there are big things. Someone betrays you. Someone falsely accuses you. Someone attacks you, right? So there's When this whole uh, spectrum of things to forgive, it goes from big to small. The question I have for you is, whether it's small or big, how quick are you to forgive? How quick are you to offer mercy to those who offend you? It's a great kingdom question. What's really interesting is, according to Jesus, and I want you to catch this, this is Jesus, not Michael, According to Jesus, if we don't extend mercy, we will not receive mercy. When you look at the, this fifth beatitude and you see how Jesus structures, his blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. In other words, if you want to receive mercy, you have to be merciful. If you want to receive forgiveness from God, you need to offer forgiveness to others. Now, this is something Jesus teaches several times, very explicitly, and honestly, it's very bothersome. Because we don't like it. Like, what we want to say is, God, um, I need you to forgive me. I know you don't expect me to forgive Joe. Um, Just forgive me for not forgiving Joe. (laughs) Now, let's see what Jesus says. So in the very next chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching us how to pray. He gives us this model prayer called the Lord's Prayer. It's like kind of a model of the kinds of things we should pray about. 
And when he gets to the second half, it turns to our personal prayer life, praying for ourselves. And Jesus says, forgive us our what? Debt. Circle that word. Forgive us our debts. And so in the Bible, forgiveness is defined as the erasing of debt. It's like when someone sins against you, they're in your debt. They owe you. In fact, we even use that language. You owe me. And so when we sin against God, we're in his debt. And so Jesus defines forgiveness as a debt that needs to be erased, wiped off the books. So think of it in accounting terms. Like someone sins against you, they owe you, and you put it in your ledger, your moral ledger, you owe me, based on the size of the offense, you owe me. You know, you owe me 50 grand, or you owe me a million, or you mean whatever the thing is, you know, 10 bucks. Um, we put it down, based on the size of the perceived offense, you owe me. And Jesus says to forgive someone is to take an eraser and you wipe out the debt. You say that that person no longer owes me. This is how it works with God too, right? That we have debts against God, things that we've, and to be forgiven is God wipes away that debt. And so what Jesus is going to say is if you want God to wipe away your debt, you need to wipe away the debt of others, things big or small. Now, again, we don't like this. We want to say, no, I want to keep Joe's debt. I want you to wipe away my debt. And on top of that, since I'm not forgiving Joe, like you said, could you wipe away that debt? (laughs) Go, we're good. I confess my sins. I am now righteous. But look what Jesus says. He says, forgive us our debts. What's the next word that comes? As, yeah, as, in other words, in the same way, in other words, God, could you use my life as a model for how you do erasing? So, God, I'd like you to forgive my debts, kind of erase them, in the same way as I've already forgiven my debtors. So God, here's what people have sinned against me. I've erased their debt. Could you do for me what I've done for them? Like use me as a model. Now how does that make you feel? Uh, We want to go like this. Hey God, could you forgive me, but um, don't use me as a model at all. Um, Just like pretend, you know, in fact, let's just add that debt to this other debt I owe you. And so in case you're saying, really? Do you really think he's saying that? Yes. All right. So let's move on. He becomes very explicit. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, you don't erase your sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. How many of you would say that's pretty clear? Like, can we stand before my, we stand before Jesus? Oh, I really didn't get that. <laughs> and so what you want, that, that, here's what I want you to catch, that Jesus is creating a kingdom. And the currency of the kingdom is mercy. 
Mercy is what we give and we receive. It's the currency of the kingdom. It's what we exchange. That I receive mercy from God, I extend mercy to you. You receive mercy from God, you extend mercy to me. Mercy is the currency of the kingdom. It's how this kingdom works. It's a kingdom of forgiveness. And so we come to Jesus, we step into this kingdom where he says, I will forgive you, but now as part of my kingdom, you need to forgive others. You say, for what? Well, for pretty much everything. Well, big things? Yes. How about small things? Yes. And it's interesting because sometimes it'll be some of us who will forgive the big things, but not the small things. Others, small things, but not the big things. Like, like for some people, they'll do the small things. They're like really easy going. They, they have no trouble. The guy cuts them off on the freeway. Ah, he's probably having a bad day. Uh, barista messes up your order. Well, she normally gets it right. Uh, person lets you down on the job with a deadline. Wow, they've got a lot going on in their marriage. We're quick to let things go. Some of you are great at this. You're just great at letting things But the big things? Oh, no. God, uh, no, I've not forgiven my uh, ex-spouse. Um, I've talked to Jesus about this, and even Jesus doesn't expect that. He gets it. Um, <laughs> We kind of have a deal, God and I, uh, on this thing. Uh, you think I'm joking. I've heard this so many times, right? Yeah, well, I'll forgive a lot of things, but I'll never forget that. Others of us will forgive the big things because it's so clearly getting in the way of our growth. It's like, I've got to forgive this. This is obviously big. So we'll go before God, and we'll wrestle with him. We'll ask for his help, and we'll seek him, and we'll, for the big things... But the small things in our life, we just get irritated with people, angry at people, and we just kind of rationalize. It's no big deal. Oh, forget it. They're just a jerk. An idiot. What do you expect from me? He's an idiot. He's always been an idiot. It's what idiots do. You know? See the big eye on his forehead? It's just the way he is, you know? Oh, yeah, I love Jesus. Yeah, I love Jesus. And, but he's an idiot, you know? <laughs> And so we'll forgive the big things, but not the small things. I want you to catch mercy is the currency of the kingdom. And so it's a kingdom where Jesus says, welcome in. I'll forgive you of everything. I don't care where you've been. But here in my kingdom, if you're going to come in, you need to give what you've received. It's the way this lubricant works. I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this very famous book called The Cost of Discipleship. You know, Bonhoeffer was this German pastor who stood up to Hitler and lost his life for it. He wrote a classic called The Cost of Discipleship, and it's on, for the large degree, it's on the Sermon on the Mount. And his language is always a little tough, you know, because it's translated from German, and he wrote in the 30s, and, but it's always worth it. And look what he said. As Christ bears our burdens, so ought we to bear the burdens of our fellow men, My brother's burden, which I must bear, is not only his outward lot, his natural characteristic, his gifts, but quite literally, it's his sin. And the only way to to bear that sin is by forgiving it in the power of the cross of Christ in which I now share. This is the call. uh, This, the call to follow Christ, always means a call to share the work of forgiving men their sins. Here's what I want you to catch. We've often thought of it like this. 
hey, Jesus died for our sins. He, he bore our sins, therefore I don't have to. Like he, he died to forgive our sins. He bore our sins, but now I can be kind of the kind of person that doesn't need to forgive sins because he bore mine. It's the exact opposite. Jesus came to show us how to bear the sins of the world. He called us to be like him and bear the sins of others. Can I tell you something? People in your life group, they're going to let you down. People in your family are going to let you down. If you're in a ministry, there's going to be conflict at times. Like we're all fallen people. And the only way for the kingdom to work is for us to extend mercy. Yes, that, they did that, but I'm going to let that go. Or I'm going to go to them and we're going to work it out. See, Jesus models for us bearing the sins of the world, and he calls us then to bear the sins of one another. That as he forgives, that as a member of his kingdom, we will learn to do the same. So how quick are you? The second question is, how much do you care? One of the things that Israel God called Israel to task, as we've seen, is that they, instead of taking care of the poor, taking care of those who were suffering, they actually abused and took advantage. And what's interesting is by the time we get to Jesus and Jesus comes on the scene, the religious leaders had really lost sight of God's vision for their life. Remember, what's God's vision? You break it all down. We're going to love God. We're going to love people. And that loving people has to do with this compassion for human suffering. And they had lost sight of this. And so we see a great example today as they drag this woman out of bed, the pre-dawn hours, and drag her through the streets and humiliate her. They really have no concern at all for her. They know she's not going to get stoned. That's not going to happen. This whole thing is a sham, but they're going to humiliate her. They're going to use her as a pawn in their game. And in their way of thinking, she is that kind of woman. She gets what she deserves. She's lucky she's not getting stoned. And so they have just no compassion we see, in contrast, Jesus' deep compassion. And we see it all through. Right? We see his compassion for those who are suffering, for the, the blind, for the poor, for the, the crowds when they're hungry. And they have no one to feel. He has this deep compassion. And what I've found over time is that this is a particular danger for religious people, this lack of compassion. Now, let me define that because here at Rocky Peak, we see religion as a negative word, right? It's like, I did a series once called Religion Kills. You know, religion, like we're not called religion. We're called this relationship. God's alive and vibrant. I get all that. But the world would look at us as religious people, right? They would look, we go to church, we read our Bibles, we pray. We, you know, so they would see us as religious people. What I'm saying is that, that one of the greatest dangers we face as religious people is to lose our compassion. And the way it works is we start measuring our spirituality with the wrong ruler. This is what had happened to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They had all these rules and regulations, many of them were good things, but they began to measure their spirituality by did they check the box, and they forgot this core calling of mercy, of compassion. In fact, um, in Matthew 23, Jesus takes him to task in this, and this is the last week of his life. He gives these seven woes, like he speaks like a prophet of old, warning on them, and just really describing what their sin is. And he says in Matthew 23, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And by the way, he's not just calling them names. A lot of times we look at this like, he's just like calling, you're such a hypocrite. He's just like, you're an idiot. It's not like that. Hypocrite, 
was uh, a term that was used in their culture to describe Greek actors. It, was, it came from the world of acting, and so hypocrites was someone who, in, in, as a, in a Greek plays, they would, uh, they would put on a, a different mask when they were different characters. So a hypocrite was someone who would wear multiple faces. And so Jesus picks up that term. This wasn't at the time like a, a bad term. He says, that's your play acting. You're pretending to be one thing when you're another. So he's describing them. And he says, you're hypocrites. And he gives an example. You give a tenth of all your spices. So he says, you're so into your tithing, which he's going to go on to say, which is a good thing. But he says, you're so into your tithing, you even tithe your spices. He says, your mint, your dill, and your, your uh, cumin. But he says, but you have neglected the more important things of the law, of the Torah, the teaching. And he said, and look what he, look what he says. What's the first one? Justice. What does that sound like? It sounds like the Old Testament prophets, doesn't it? What does he require of you, oh man? But you love justice. He says, and then look at the next one. You, what's the next one? Mercy, what we've seen today. You see what I'm saying? Jesus stands knee deep in the Old Testament. He, he's not like, oh, that was then, this is now. No, no, this, he is bringing it to fulfillment. And this is exactly what the problem. You've, you've lost your mercy, like for that woman. We'll see it all along. We saw it a couple weeks ago. He heals a person on the Sabbath. They don't care about the person getting healed. They care about breaking the rules. There's no mercy. And faithfulness, that concept of emet from the Old Testament, truthfulness, of being true. to uh, what You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Hey, it's great. The tithing's all great. And I said, but hey, but it's so easy to start measuring yourself by the wrong things and to miss the most important, this mercy. And men and women, this can happen to us. You know, as followers of Jesus, do we have to leave sin behind? Of course we do. It's destructive, you know? Should we have spiritual disciplines in our life? We read the Bible, we pray, and yes, we should. Should we serve? Absolutely. But sometimes we can fall into this trap of like, oh, I go to church, I'm in a life group, I do this, but we have become a harsh people that lacks mercy that lacks compassion for human suffering. And it's just a danger that religious people, we, we always have to face. You know, years ago, many years ago, there's a famous uh, author, speaker named Tony Campolo, and uh, he used to teach at a Christian college on the East Coast, and so he was once asked, he, he wrote a book called The Kingdom of God as a Party, and he tells a story in there where uh, he was uh, working on the East Coast, you know, at this college, and so he was asked to speak, he's a very gifted speaker, he was asked to speak in Waikiki, and of course, going from the East Coast to Waikiki is a major time shift, and so he gets in his first night, he can't sleep because of jet lag, and so he gets up in the middle of the night, and he's like, maybe there's an all-night diner around here, so he starts looking for an all-night diner, and sure enough, he finds one, and he goes in, and he's, you know, ordering some food, and it's not too long, uh, pretty soon, all these kind of women of the street come in, you know, let's call them working women. And so uh, they come in dressed to kill, right? They're dressed to kill, and uh, so they're prostitutes, and they sit down near him, and uh, he can hear their conversation. And one of these women's name is Agnes, and she says to some of her friends, she says, uh, hey, tomorrow's my birthday. And she's kind of young, sort of innocent, kind of young. And, um, and so one of the ladies just kind of hardens, says, well, big deal. What do you expect, like throw a party for you or something? And she says, oh, no, 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 no one's ever thrown me a birthday party my whole life. I was just, just saying tomorrow's my birthday. And so Tony hears his story, and he's, he's just, he's kind of moved by this, right? He's kind of moved with compassion. So after they all leave, he goes up to the guy he thinks is the owner of the diner. He's this old guy, kind of a crusty guy. His name's Harry. 
And he says, hey, Harry, he says, do these, do these women come here every day at this time, every night at this time? He said, yep, 3.30, it's a break. They come in, you know, 3.30. And uh, he said, well, hey, would, would it be okay? I'd like to throw a party, a birthday party for Agnes tomorrow. So would it be okay if, if I came in? He's like, what? And so he says, well, I don't know, let me ask my wife. So he calls the wife out and she comes out, this older lady, and, and uh, she's real sweet. And they tell him, what well, he says, oh, I'd love to do that. She said, Agnes is... Agnes is kind of, kind of one of those type of people that has never had anything done for her in her life. And so uh, Tony says, well, that's great. I'll bring the de- decorations. I'll pick up a birthday cake. And now Harry's starting to catch the vision. He's like, oh, you're not bringing a birthday cake in here. I'm the baker. I'll bake the cake. And so sure enough, 2.30 the next night, 2.30, uh, Tony shows up, has happy birthday. Agnes signs he's got. He's got crepe paper, starts decorating up. Sure enough, 3.15, all these prostitutes are coming in. Harry's let the word out in the streets, something's important happening tonight. And so they got more than usual customers. And so sure enough, 3.30, Agnes comes in with some of her friends. Everyone shouts out loud, happy birthday, Agnes. And she is like deer in the headlights. She has never experienced anything like this in her life. Tears begin to come down. She doesn't know what to do. There's a helper to the counter that sits on a stool. Harry brings out the cake, ready to cut the cake. It's just, wait a sec, wait a sec. Would it be okay if I took this cake and showed it to someone special in my life before we cut it? And he said, I guess so. And so she leaves with the cake. And now Tony's standing there with Harry, Gruffle, Harry and his wife and all these prostitutes. <laughs> and he doesn't know what to do. He's kind of nervous. So he says, well, let's just have a word of prayer. <laughs> and so they pray for Agnes, and he just prays that God would love on her, and he would draw Agnes to himself, and he would meet her, and he'd be good to her. He just prays for Agnes. When he gets done, it's kind of awkward. And Harry looks up with this look of disgust and says, you never said you were a preacher. <laughs> he says, what kind of church do you go to? Tony didn't know what to say. So he said, I go to a church that throws birthday parties for people who are lost and left out at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry said, no, you don't. There's no church like that around here. If there was, I'd go to it. But there is a church like that. It's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come for people that are left out and lost and the king has come who doesn't care where you've come from or what you've done. And he's come to launch a kingdom where the currency is mercy. Where we, we receive it, we offer it, we give forgiveness, we care, where people have compassion. It's the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Well, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I just want to give you a time to reflect. It's that's the band to come out. They're going to be singing a song over us. It's not a worship song. It's more a song for you to listen to and reflect. A couple of great questions asked today. How quick are you to forgive? How much do you care? I think there's something there for all of us. Just to reflect and say, God, what does this look like in my life? Holy Spirit, is there anything you want to say to me? You know, maybe you're here today and you've been far from God and you've just, you want to come home to God. You want to know God, but you've just been afraid that you've gone too far your sin's too great. And I hope today that you're getting a vision for this, that Jesus has come for exactly people like you, exactly for people like me. People are far from God. Maybe today there's a person in your life that you've been struggling with to forgive and kind of holding on your right 
your right to that, hold on that debt because it was so great. Or maybe you've been a person who's kind of written off small debts, like no big deal. It's right. I can call him an idiot. I can be that. It's just no big deal. And today you see in, in just a fresh way this beautiful kingdom Jesus calls us to where mercy is the currency. But whatever it is, as, as they minister to us with a song, let these words wash over you. The words be on your screen if you want to watch. But just be in the presence of the Lord. And, and what does he want to say to you now? So, Lord, we come to you now in the name of Jesus, our great king. You said, blessed are the merciful. They will receive mercy. We pray that we would both receive it and that we would have a vision now to give it in your name. Amen. Lord, we're so thankful that that's true, that your mercy triumphs over judgment. And God, we know that you call us to be that people that are being transformed by the power of your spirit. That would be true in our lives, too that we would be quick to forgive and to offer the mercy that we've been received and to create a kingdom where the currency is mercy. And so, God, we pray that you would be working in our lives in that way. And so as we worship you, as we continue in worship, as we bring you our gifts, our offerings, our tithes, we pray, God, that this would create a place where mercy would triumph over judgment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we worship? One of the things Jesus said is freely you have received, therefore freely give. It's a message of the kingdom. The currency of the kingdom is mercy. And as we receive, so we give. We give to one another. We give to those far from God. That we've got great news. The kingdom of God has come. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, that there is room for you at the table. There is mercy. Not just mercy to come in the front door, but once you come in, there's mercy here as we grow together, as we fail one another, as we drop the ball at times. We're not going to defend that. We're not going to hold on to that. We're going to hold each other accountable, but there's mercy. There's mercy. We want to do relationships in a healthy way, but there's mercy. We don't expect perfection. We know we'll fail. And so may this be a week where we grow in the mercy of God. He's making us right He's making us like him, that we would extend mercy to one another and to those who don't know him yet in the way that he's extended mercy to us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hey, this week, a couple things as we go. Remember that as we, uh, as we leave today, if you need prayer, whether it's over in the Ridge or right here in the worship center, to my right and your left, we always have a prayer team every week that have got badges on. Love to pray with you about whatever you're going through. Secondly, I want to invite you back next week. I'll be in Uganda teaching there. Dre will be teaching here. And we'll be continuing on this series. And we'll be going on to the sixth beatitude, which is amazing. And uh, so I hope you can be here as we continue that journey. And don't forget, I would love to share the journey with you and share the story of what God's doing in Uganda. And so I'd really encourage you, go ahead and go to our Facebook, go to our YouTube, sign up, subscribe so you get notifications when we come in because we're going to be sending them. Uh, throughout the time there, and you can join us with this journey. So until then, may the Lord be with you. May you walk uprightly in his kingdom. May he be making you right. May you be growing in mercy. May you be rich in mercy. May you experience the mercy of God in new ways in your life this week. And may in turn, may you be blessed as you extend that mercy to others. Amen? God bless you guys. I'll see you soon.